I'm going to do something completely different. You know that I, if you're around, you know that I'm not a person who finds uh, Satan under every rock or anything like that. But there's been a, a bunch of things that have kind of gone on this morning. I mean, we do the projectors the same way for a year and a half. And it's just like the second time, two weeks ago was the first time, but second time that they've gone wrong on us. Uh, and there's been other things. So uh, I'm going to tell you that I'm preaching from 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. And, and I'm just going to pray uh, because I think today's sermon is really important. And I think that God wants to do work in you, and I think that uh, Satan doesn't want anything good to take place in you. He wants to work in you too, just in an entirely different way. And so let's bow our heads one more time. Uh, I'll pray quickly just that that God would be here and and he would work despite distraction. Lord, uh, I thank you um, for this passage of scripture we're about to look at. I pray, God, that, that you would come down in a supernatural way and that you would speak to our hearts, that you would touch lives as I pray before the service, that, that you lead people to you, uh, that you would convict people of sin, that you would encourage people, that you would bring people hope. Do what you need to do uh, in, in these moments, God, in our lives. I pray that you would just work. Uh, God, I, I believe in an enemy that wants to thwart uh, your plan. I uh, know he can't because you're bigger and stronger, but I pray that you would protect us from any darkness uh, around us this morning, and you would allow for all of us to hear what we need to hear from you. In your name, amen. So I'm uh, annoyed often, and if you're around me and we talk privately, then you know this already. I'm annoyed by how often Christians, certain Christian circles, we just ignore like a lot of verses that are in the Bible. And uh, we talk about, I don't know, the same things over and over and over again. And then we, we just, I don't know, pretend that these other verses that don't exist, we have our favorites and then the other things don't get talked about enough. Uh, and, and what we're going to look at today, while it's not like something Christians hide or, you know, they don't want to talk about, I think that they're verses that everybody should know that exist in the Bible and probably a lot of people don't. Um, probably a lot of people have, have never really thought about these verses before. And I think that one of the reasons they're not like the cool verse, the verse that we want to put above our toilet or whatever, um, you know, I mean, it's not one of those verses, uh, is because it calls us to something and it lays, and this is, this is the reality of this verse, it, it lays a huge responsibility on us especially those of us who are Christians. And, and so as we come to it today, I, I just I hope that you'll have an open mind and an open heart and an open soul to listen to what it says because I think, I think it can be life-changing. It is, in fact, the, the very theme verses or the key verses for this entire sermon series that we're doing on First Peter. And uh, you'll, you'll see why we entitled the sermon series what we did, Exiles. Uh, it's not on the screens, so I have to remember that. Exiles, living beautifully in an ugly world. And you'll see why we entitled the series that uh, when you hear these verses in just a second. Um, but let me just say that the verses that precede it are verses about the privileges that we have when we become Christians. 
And that's the stuff that Christians like to hang on their bathroom walls or in their living room or whatever. The things, and, and that's good, that's fine. But it's the things that we have if we have become Christians. The things that we look forward to when we become Christians. The things that we get when we become Christians. The joy that we have in Jesus when we become Christians. The direction of life that we kind of have when we become Christians. All of that stuff. And, and Peter talks about some of those things in the two verses that precede the verses that we're going to look at today. And then he kind of stops And in verse 11, you'll notice how he begins. It's kind of a change of thought. It's a change of direction for him. He he says something different here. He says, dear friends. You know, if anybody says that to you, then it's about to get serious, right? I mean, if anybody comes up to you and says, my friend... Then you go, oh no, you know, oh no, what are you going to say next? What's going, what are you, what are you going to say? Is this bad news? You assume bad news. And, and he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, and I want to pause there. I want to harp a little bit more on this friends idea because uh, I want to remind you who's talking here. This is Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. Uh, Peter was a guy that got to witness miracles that other disciples did not get to witness. Peter was, in fact, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but he was also the first leader of the church, like the whole church. When Jesus began this thing that we call church, he he was like, hey, Peter, you're going to be the first leader of it. That's a pretty big deal, right? So Peter is important. He's, you know, writing words that are eventually going to become the Bible. And Peter in the middle stops and he addresses this group of exiles, this group of Christians scattered around Asia Minor, and he calls them friends. And it's, it's interesting to me because he could have called them people in the church that I run, you know, people uh, that are beneath me. He could have referred to himself as Pastor Peter or, or, or Leader Peter or whatever. But instead, he chooses to use the term dear friends. And it's actually the word is beloved. Uh, that's just not a word we use very often, but it sounds a lot nicer, right? Like beloved, people I love. And so what Peter is about to say is based not on his position of leadership as much as it is his love for the people that he is writing to. He wants what is best for them. He wants what is good for them. He wants what is right for them. And so he pins these words as he's led by the Holy Spirit that he says next. And, and notice even the word urge. I mean, that's like, a, you know, I urge you. Like, I, I really want this for you. This is something that, that would be very valuable for you. And, and then he says this thing that's a repeat of the first verses in the whole book. As foreigners and exiles. Those two words uh, are important to kind of understand. The first one, foreigners, if you look at the Greek word, it, it literally means like beside the house. Uh, and that's kind of weird, right? But, but the idea is like somebody who's near to something, but not actually a part of it. And so it'd be like if you were camping outside of a family's house, that'd be weird. You'd go to jail. But, uh, but you, you see like you are near to them, but you are not part of them. Kind of like being a neighbor, um, but something, you know, a, a more proximity, a closer proximity than just being a neighbor. And so that's what the word is getting at. It's like getting at uh, a people who are by, near, next to another group of people, but they're not actually a part of them. And then exile is a word that we talked about a few weeks ago at the beginning of the book. It refers to a group of people who are traveling, you know this, but, but they plan to stay for a while. 
It's kind of what an exile is, right? You're not a tourist uh, because tourists come and they take a few pictures and they go home. You're an exile because you've come and you're going to stay. And, and so Peter reminds these people of something that's very important to him, that they are foreigners and exiles on earth. Now, this does not mean that they've traveled and lived in another land. It's talking about something spiritual. In 1.1, you might remember this. Peter says, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. In 1 Peter 1.17, he said, live out your time as foreigners in reverent fear. And then we can see in Philippians 3, 19 through 21, just a full explanation of what Peter's getting at. He's talking about non-Christians at first. Uh, Paul is writing this. He says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies, so that we will be like his glorious body. He says, hey, your citizenship is in heaven. He says, hey, if you're a Christian, sure, you're around a whole bunch of people that are focused on a whole bunch of stuff that you can see and taste and touch and feel and all those things. But if you're a Christian, then your mindset needs to be different because now your citizenship is no longer in earth, but it's in heaven. And so you should be thinking about heavenly things. And so when Peter refers to us as exiles and foreigners, he's saying, you live here, you're on this earth, But your mindset, your heart, the things you think about, the things that are important to you should not be earthly things, but heavenly things, because that is your true home. I described it like this many years ago to uh, to the youth group, and I said said it this way, and I think it's it's funny, and so I'm going to read it again. I liked it. Uh, I am a Martian man who is here to tell people about the king that is in my true home. And for Peter, that's who we are as Christians. We are aliens who are in a different land and our one job in this land, the reason that we exist here, the reason that we haven't been taken back to our homeland is because we have a job to do. And the job is to tell our king from our, or tell people about our king from our land and and what he's done for him, that he came to their land, that he died for them, that he rose again, that he conquered sin and he conquered death. And you can go and live with us someday when you die if you'll accept him as Lord and Savior. That's our job. And so Peter reminds these people he's writing to about this. I want to remind you who you are. And the truth is, this is the reality, that until you see yourself as an exile and a foreigner on this earth, then you will not be able to live out what he says next. And the sad part is, and this is why we don't like this verse, I think maybe it's a verse that we don't talk about a lot. It's not one you were maybe familiar with before you got here this morning. Here's here's the truth. We are pretty comfortable on this earth for the most part. And most of us view this earth as our home and we want, we strive to, we desire to make our lives here and now as good as possible and we very often forget that we're actually only here if we're Christians to tell people about our king that's in our home. You see, the the problem is we get caught up in being at home here on earth. We have moved into the house, we've moved our furniture in and, and then we say, well, Jesus, we want you to be a part of this earth. But what we should be thinking is we're actually a part of that heaven uh, and we should live in accordance to that. Uh, Just think of this like, 
we think that our lives will go on forever, don't we? And even if you're older and you go, well, I'm getting older and I see how fast life goes, you still have, everybody I know, it seems like, there's something inside of us that at least wants to try to make this life last forever. And, and, and it seems that almost everybody I know is striving to make this life just as good as possible. But the things that we live for because we're so at home on this earth are not the things that we care about when we're facing death. You don't usually hear people who are facing death talk about their house, you know, and like, oh, make sure my, my lawn is mowed, you know, or whatever. I mean, people don't do that. That's not how they think. And, and so the way that you can know if, if you are too at home on this earth is just to look at the things that you care about, that you focus on, that your lives are driven by. And if it's all things that you can touch and see and feel and hear, then you're probably too at home here. And so the first point, the first thing that you need to understand, the first kind of key uh, to this passage is that you need to be a person who works hard not to be too at home on this earth and strives to remember that your true citizenship is at heaven and you're only here to do a job and the job is to tell other people about your king in your land, the place that you will go when you die or when your king comes to get you. That's the truth. And when you do that, what he says next is possible. I guess I'll use the word possible. He says, as aliens, exiles, foreigners, you ought to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Last week, we talked about how one of the ways that we can live beautifully is, is just to take off the ugly, sinful things that we do. And I had my, my ugly hat. I think it's a good-looking, awesome hat, but my wife disagrees. Um, but I had my ugly hat on, and, and I said, just taking it off in most people's minds will make me, you know, more beautiful, uh, will at least make me look less foolish. And, and, and Peter comes back to that here and, and says, part of living beautifully notice this, is just abstaining from sinful desires. And I want you to pay close attention to that. He doesn't just say here abstaining from sin. He says abstaining from sinful desires. That's harder, right? Like I could not lie. Fairly easy for me not to lie. I've never had a lying problem. But to not want to lie that's like a whole different level. That's more difficult. That's hard because there's, I mean, I, I want to lie quite often. I'm, let me just be honest and open here. Like there are a lot of times I could just be like, I could just lie, you know, I could just say something different. I could just kind of fudge the truth a little bit. That's more. I never want to tell blatant lies, but just fudge the truth just a little, make it sound a little better. Just, you know, to want that is something I don't even think about avoiding. And Peter says, okay, here's the deal. You, you, your citizenship is there and not here. And you, you're a foreigner in exile. And so here's, here's one of the, the big key steps to living beautifully while you're here in this ugly world. Do your best to not even want the things that are bad. That's crazy. We always, because we're Americans, I think, we always like 
like want the quick, easy, simple fix and we're all about symptoms, are we not? Like how many of you think about your health unless you can see some symptom? And the symptom might just be your gut is growing and then you go, oh wait, I should do something about it. But when you get sick or unhealthy, then all of a sudden you go, oh, there's a symptom and I need to do something about it. And Peter says, don't wait for the symptom of sin to set in. Fight to abstain from wanting the sin in the first place. That's pretty crazy advice. And you go, well, that's not that big of a deal. And there's a couple reasons you might say that. The first is that we, we as Christians, and again, this is one of these things that bother me, and I said this just last week or a couple weeks ago or something, we have like these big sins and we think if we avoid the big sins, then we're okay and we're good to go. But there's like all these other sins that we don't care about and we're almost famous for. Like I said this, we're famous for hypocrisy, are we not? Like we're famous for acting one way and being another way. And we are, we're famous for our slander and we're famous for our divisions. And, and these are all things that the Bible actually talks about avoiding. Let me just read you from Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The acts of the flesh, sins, sinful desires, things that we should avoid even wanting. Let me, let me tell you what Paul says. They're, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, that's one we think about. Impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Those are big. We don't like any of those. But listen to this. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage or anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, and drunkenness, orgies and the like. We don't like the last ones either. But those middle ones, you know, I mean, the middle ones, it's like, wait a minute. When Peter talks about sinful desires and not even wanting them, like discord? Like being, you know, in friction with somebody else? Or jealousy? I preached on jealousy not too long ago. We've made jealousy almost like a good thing. You know, like we say we want our kids to, to be the envy of their friends. Like it's not some sin. And I said, you, you never say you want your kid to be like the lust of their friends, you know, because we see that as a bad one. But there's this other sin or fits of rage. We don't mind anger that much, do we? Selfish ambition, that's a positive like we buy into the American dream in the church just as much as every other American and we want our kids to be at least a little bit selfishly ambitious, just a little, just enough so they go to college and get a good job. And Peter is saying, these are the things that we should avoid even wanting in the first place. And, and the other reason you'd say, well, it's not that big a deal is because you go, well, you know, who cares if I have a little discord? I mean, that's not that big a deal. I'm not going to hurt anybody with that. It won't be too bad. But notice what Peter says at the second part of what I just read, which wage war, wage war against your soul. The idea is that there's this military campaign for your soul. And as I kind of prayed about before we started, I mean, Satan is battling for your soul. The enemy is coming for your soul and there's a war for it. And Peter says, avoid even wanting sin because, because the spiritual life is not some walk in the park. It, it is a battle, it is a war, it is a fight against a, a military campaign that wants your soul to go the wrong direction. And when I look at most Christians, it seems to me 
that we do treat our spiritual lives like a game, but not even a competitive game. It's like something we think, well, the goal, here's the goal of most people's spiritual lives. I want to enjoy it, you know? I want to feel happy. I want to feel like things are going pretty well. But the goal should be not to get destroyed by the enemy. And when the goal is to not get destroyed by the enemy, when we're actually fighting the good fight of faith, as Paul describes it elsewhere, then I think it's going to change how you go about your business. And one of the things it should make you do is strive not to even want to do bad things in the first place. You see, you think like, well, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know, I just want to feel good, it's kind of a game or whatever, a walk in the park or, you know, it's something I do on Sundays and that's about it and, you know, you got your one hour of God and then you got your eight hours of football or whatever and, and, and Peter says, no, 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 wait, 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 look, 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 you're in exile here and you are being attacked all the time and, and we know, we know this, you may not see the attack I mean, because the best way for the enemy to fight against us is for us not to ever talk about how jealousy is bad or how fits of rage are part of the enemy's plan against your soul. But Peter says, don't even want to have these things be a part of your life because there is a war for your soul. Now, let's just let it sink in because I think some of you have maybe never thought that before, that Satan, your flesh even, it's waging war against your very soul. And if you don't take that seriously, then you will lose the battle. I know people, a lot of people, who love God. They try to live a fairly good life, but they've treated the Christian life, the spiritual life, like kind of a secondary thing that maybe gets a, a piece of their lives and not the whole thing. And then they're two years down the line and they are so far, three years, they're so far from where they wanted to be that they don't know how it happened. And Peter tells us how it happened. There's been a war against their soul the whole time. They just didn't recognize it. And so they treated Christianity like a game instead of a battle and they lost. And then Peter says this other thing. This is so important. I think it's the most important thing I could say to you if you are a Christian already. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. The word good is used twice, and I've said this before in sermons. Uh, it's a, one of the few things I actually remember from Greek class. Uh, the word is kalos, and it actually means beautiful, and I've said this to you before, but I remember that because instead of learning Greeky things, I just sat in the back writing Greek love poems that I would later in the day show my homiletics professor to be funny. Um, and kalos is an, beautiful is an important word when you're writing love poems. And so this word I remember, the word good does not do it justice. It means beautiful. And so Peter comes along here. He says, avoid even wanting to do bad things. And oh, by the way, 
live such beautiful lives among the pagans. Pagans sounds really mean, but all Peter means by pagans is people who aren't Christians, people who don't subscribe to Christianity. That's all he means. Live such beautiful lives among non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your beautiful deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. John MacArthur of that same word describes it with these words, lovely, fine, gracious, fair to look at, winsome, noble. Peter says, here's what I want from you who are Christians. I want your lives to be so beautiful that an unbelieving world can't help but look at them and recognize them as beautiful. Now here's the, here's the crazy part. Here's what's so fascinating to me. He says this weird thing about like, though they accuse you of doing wrong, and we, we have this mindset, I think, that to be a Christian at the very beginning was really easy, but it wasn't that much different than it is today. And today, you know this already, that Christians are accused of, of doing wrong things, sometimes rightfully so, but other times um, just because of stereotypes or because of what people have seen on TV or whatever. I told you this just a handful of weeks ago. I said that somebody I was sitting with that likes me, that I would consider a friend, we were talking about spiritual things, and she said to me, well, you hate gay people, don't you? No, I don't. I love gay people and I like them as a matter of fact. Uh, And she's like, well, the Bible tells you you need to hate them. And I was like, No, and so there was just this idea from a non-Christian that I hate all gay people because uh, we who are Bible-believing Christians think that that homosexuality is a sin. She just assumed I hated them or disliked them or something, and and I I don't. And in the early church, it was no different than this. In fact, they were accused of, of things that were just as bad and in some cases worse than the things we're accused of today. Let me look down just so I get some of them. In the early church, it's pretty bad. They were accused of incest and cannibalism. And you might be able to guess why. They referred to each other as brothers and sisters because they saw themselves as being part of this new family of God. And so people saw two married people walking down the road holding hands. I made that up. But, uh, but you know, they saw a married couple and then they'd hear them call each other even in, married, uh, in a married relationship, brother and sister, because they saw themselves in that familial way. And they'd go, those Christians are weird, man. They're just marrying their siblings. And the cannibalism, we'll celebrate communion here in a second. And the people talked about this bread being the body of Jesus and the blood being, and the, the, the wine being his, his blood. And they go, what kind of religion is that? You know, I mean, cannibalism, it, it gets worse in some ways because they actually saw them as being atheists. And for a person living, and today, you know, you might, people are going to look at an atheist and say they're smarter or whatever, but, but then, I mean, to be an atheist, you were like the, the far, far outlier, which you still are, but like there were no atheists because people worshiped the emperor's God and they had a bunch of gods to choose from. And so like today, you know, 99% of people were worshiping some God, but they looked at Christians as atheists. Uh, and, and so... That's, you're not right. I mean, we know Christians aren't atheists. Even uh, other things, um, they looked at Christians as hurting social and economic process or perhaps progress. Does that sound kind of familiar? I mean, why are you Christians standing in the way of us moving culture forward in a way where everybody is accepted and included? I mean, and that's exactly what the early church was dealing with. And so the Roman government didn't like Christians because they were, they were getting in the way of progress. 
And then, this, I mean, here's one. They, they looked at them, and this is like where you just go, well, that can't be, but it was. They couldn't stand Christians because Christians were against slavery. And so even though Christians, we now look back and go, well, they were right. They should have been against slavery. But in the early church, they were looked at as bad for that because it's like, wait, you're trying to hurt my livelihood? You're trying to mess up how my family runs? These things kind of sound familiar. You're getting in the way of the things that I think are right and good and my economic status all in the name of your Jesus. And so they weren't liked because of that. And today, you know, you get accused of hating gay people and being anti-science and disrespecting women. I've heard that just recently. Uh, and we have these, these things that people think about us. And, and you know what we do? We just complain. Said that last week, but we complain or we yell at people or we get mad because they're wrong about us. You know what Peter says to do? Live such beautiful lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds anyway. And then they accept Jesus as their savior. That's what the day of visitation is referring to. Now, there, there's a couple parts of this. It says live beautiful lives, but then there's this other thing, have beautiful deeds. And, and I think that even some of the most beautiful Christians I know who are morally really, really strong, you know, they, they haven't given in a sin, they don't even want to sin, they're living out some of the Christian virtues where we kind of fall short oftentimes is that we don't remember that there's a call in the Bible to do beautiful deeds. So let me just ask the question. You don't have to raise your hand uh, and maybe it'll be convicting. Maybe it'll be encouraging. I don't know where it'll fall, but let me just ask, like, are you doing intentionally beautiful deeds? Are you doing things that are intentionally beautiful because you love God? And Peter says, live such beautiful lives that it produces these beautiful deeds, these works that people are just like, wow, I, I think that you hate science and gay people and you're impeding the progress of our country, but man alive, there's something awesome about you. Not yell at them, not post on social media about how you're right and they're wrong, but live such beautiful lives and do such beautiful deeds that, that people can't help but, but recognize how beautiful it is. Now, I just, the thing that's come to mind when I was writing the sermon and even now, it's like this, like you should be the neighbor that when you see somebody moving in or out, you just go over there and you start helping. You know, that's, that's how you respond. When all the negativity comes, comes towards Christians, whether it be right or wrong, you're the neighbor that, that helps somebody move or, or they're moving in a couch and you go over there and you help them move in a couch. You should be that neighbor. You should be the neighbor that people know that they can come to if they ever have a problem or if they need baking soda even. You know, you should be that neighbor. And even though they'll go, well, you're a Christian and I think things about you, you don't seem that way because you do such beautiful deeds. Now, the problem here, and I'll call it a problem, is that Peter seems to imply that your neighbors and your loved ones and your friends and your family, that their salvation <laughs> is in some ways hanging in the balance on whether or not you choose to live a beautiful life. He says, live such a beautiful life that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your beautiful deeds and 
glorify God on the day he visits. In the Old and New Testament, both the day of God's visitation, it can be taken a couple ways. One, the return of Jesus, but also it means the day when God meets with somebody and he redeems them from their sin, from their wrongdoings, from the things that they've done that are evil. And I believe that in this passage, what Peter is saying is that if you will live beautiful lives that are full of beautiful deeds, then your neighbors and your friends and your loved ones are going to look at those things and it is eventually, if you have the guts to speak up when they ask you about Jesus, going to result in them glorifying, thanking, praising, celebrating what God has done in their lives when they declare Jesus as Lord and Savior and invite him to come into their lives. You see, we go, well, there's a war against my soul, but what does a sin or two matter? I'll tell you what it matters. It matters because you increase the stereotype that Christians are bad or evil or do dumb things or hate people when you're not living a beautiful life full of beautiful deeds. It's amazing what I have to overcome being a pastor. Not because the job is that inherently hard, but because there's so many pastors who get famous for doing dumb, dumb stuff. Uh, Not dumb. Let's not call it dumb. It's not dumb. They're not idiots. Evil, evil things. They do evil things. And so then people hear pastor, and, and I swear I overcome like being a molester because of all the things that have happened in the Catholic church. And so there's that side I have to overcome. They over, I have to overcome this idea that I probably will have an affair and cheat on my wife. I have to overcome this idea that I'm a big time hypocrite and I just say a bunch of stuff on stage and don't live it out in the rest of my life. I have to overcome this idea that I'm in it to get rich. It's the funniest one to me because it's just like, do you want to see my bank account? Um, I can prove, disprove that to you. But I have to overcome this because there are so many rich people. I heard this story about this pastor who, who uh, televangelist type guy, he bought a private jet for himself because he traveled so much that it would eventually pay itself off and somebody did the math and he would have to like fly first class for 178 years for it to pay itself off. But uh, anyway, and so I overcome these things and you, you already know this, as a Christian, you are overcoming the baggage of every other Christian that a person has ever met, that they've created. They go, well, I went to that church once and they were mean. Or I lived next to a Christian and they were a jerk. You have to overcome that. But this sermon isn't about overcoming that. It's about not being that baggage for somebody else. It's about living a beautiful life full of beautiful works so that when people think about Christians, they can't help but think about you and how awesome you were despite everything they may have thought about Christians before. And eventually, ultimately, the goal is that they will come to salvation. In the early church, they had all these things going against them and there's this weird verse. It's always been one of my favorite verses. It's in the book of Acts. And it's one of my favorite, it's two verses, but it's, it's kind of one of my favorite sections just because it's so interesting and it's odd. It's not like it doesn't make me feel good. I don't cling to it when I'm crying or anything like that. It's just interesting. It's talking about the early church and Christians and here's what it says. No one else dared join them. It's a weird thing to be in the Bible, right? About Christians in the early church. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Isn't that cool? Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number daily. You see, in the early church, what I think happened is that you didn't have people just showing up to church who weren't Christians because they saw the, the level of 
standard, the, the standard they lived to, and they saw Ananias and Sapphira die, um, and these people who disobeyed God, and, and they saw that it was maybe going to cost them their livelihood to go to church, and that people would scorn them and reject them and their families, and so they're like, I'm not going to be a part of that. But then they saw the beautiful works of the Christians, and they became Christians, and then they came to the church. Isn't that cool? And I think that ought to be the ultimate goal of our lives. To abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against our soul and then live so beautifully and have such beautiful works that people just want what we have. And even though they might think that Christians are weird or they might have the idea that Christians are hateful or that Christians are pushing an agenda that they're against, they'll look at your life and they'll want to be a Christian anyway. I think that is ultimately the question. Are you striving to live so beautifully that you in your personal interactions with non-Christians can overcome all the baggage that comes with the word Christian? And I think for a lot of us, it's not the goal of our lives. So this morning, all that I'm asking is that you just for a moment here will look into your heart and you will ask whether or not you are striving to live beautifully. And you will ask if you are making an effort to produce beautiful works. If your goal every week is to get up, do your job, collect a paycheck, get by, make yourself happy, make yourself feel good, then I hope the Holy Spirit will convict you terribly. I hope that you will feel such guilt, and guilt doesn't matter. Guilt's only good as long as it changes your life, but I hope you'll feel guilt if that's what it takes to have a life change. Because the goal for those of us who are Christians is not just to get by and have fun and be satisfied with what's going on in our lives. The goal is to live such beautiful lives with such beautiful works that other people become Christians. Not to avoid a few sins, but to live beautifully in the midst of this ugly world. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to pray, and then uh, communion will pass after I pray. And, and during this next song, I always say that, you know, think about communion and all that, and we'll have a brief time of reflection for that. But during this next song, I just want you to sit in your spot, and, and I don't want you to sing, actually, today. And I'm sorry to the band, because I know it's weird when nobody else is singing. But, uh, but I don't want you guys to sing. I want you to sit in your chairs, and I want you to ask, do you care about living a beautiful life? Are there beautiful works in your life? Is there anything that needs to change to make your life more beautiful? Is there any sin that is preventing your life from being beautiful? When people look at you, are they actually seeing that you are something different than the rest of this ugly world? All those questions. And I hope by the end of the song, as we kind of come into communion, that, that you'll make a decision. If you answer those questions in the negative, that you'll make a decision to live a beautiful life full of beautiful work. So will you pray with me? Lord, I just pray that, uh, that you would convict us if we need conviction, that you would encourage us if we need encouragement, that you would, as I prayed earlier, inspire us if we need inspiration, but that you would move in, and move in all of our hearts, God, and you would just cause us to want to live lives, God, that are as, as big as you are, as beautiful as yours was when you came to this earth, Jesus, to live. Um, the world has enough Christians, God, who are mediocre, 
has enough Christians who live ugly lives. It needs a bunch of Christians who will live beautifully. And I pray that our church would be filled with those kinds of people. I pray these things in your name. Amen.